All right, if you want to turn to your Bibles in 1 Kings chapter 13, we're going to read um, starting with verse 14. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. He said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, come home with me and eat bread. The man of God said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So the man of God went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Becca. So last week I finished the series on the life and ministry of Elijah. And uh, around Tuesday, my wife Becca there, she was asking me, what are, what's this week's sermon? And I told her, well, I told her the truth. I don't know. Um, sometimes God gives me sermon series like in advance. And sometimes I just have a daily bread type of a thing where I'm depending on God to give me what I'm to preach on the next week. Becca asked me, does that ever worry you that you don't know what you're going to be preaching? I was like, you know, it, it really doesn't for a couple of reasons. One is I preach on the scripture. I don't have like a topic or something I want to try to get across and then I'm going to find my proof text. I teach on the scripture. I preach on the scripture so I can open up my Bible and start studying. Of course, I've never really had to do that because God's always given me something to preach. Sometimes it's months in advance. In fact, I do have a sermon series that God has laid on my heart, but it's not for the end of, till the end of September into October. I'll, tell, I'll, I'll do a tease for that some other time. So in the intermediate time, I'm just like, okay, God, what do you want for this week? And, uh, you know, I find that to be so relevant in my life in so many other areas, in so many areas in your own life. The trusting in God in the dark times, in the times where we don't know what's going to be happening next. It's just trusting God in the day-to-day -day life to be faithful in what God has given us. And after we know that every, after we've done everything to be faithful today, that we don't have to worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will take care of itself. That today's manna is good for today. Tomorrow's manna will be good for tomorrow. There's this quote from V.R. Edmund, Never doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. I thought about that, and it, you know, as I was going through 1 Kings chapter 13, I, by the way, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 13 all morning this morning. You will want to open up there as we go through that chapter. Um, that's, that is really the crux. That's the thematic statement of, of 1 Kings chapter 13. Don't doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light. So we are still in 1 Kings. Like I said before, God, is, God led me to this. I've got a, I've got a sermon series that will be around October-ish, late September. And, um, but so I'm, I was, God, the Holy Spirit was leading me to 1 Kings. And I kind of wanted to be like, no, I'm, I'm done with Kings for a while. I've been preaching in the book of Kings for like, it feels like ever. And, you know, the Holy Spirit's like, check it out. And I checked it out. And I'm like, yep, this is it. I got to preach on this. I'm not, I'm not sad about it. I'm actually excited. This is one of these little known stories in the scripture. It's kind of like, especially towards the end, it's kind of like, wait, what happened now? Um, type of a thing. Um, in prayer, um, I felt led back to First Kings. I normally like to preach out of the New Testament, honestly. I know it doesn't seem like that because I've preached out of the Old Testament a whole lot, but I really do like preaching out of the New Testament. 
We spent so many weeks in the book of Kings, but now we are back. And this is an amazing, foreboding story. It's ultimately a story of deadly foolishness, of deadly foolishness. I've spoken before about Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9 is a, includes the personification of wisdom and foolishness. In wisdom, it's lady wisdom, and in foolishness, I call her Madame Foolishness. And both of them have tables that they, that they, that they plead with people to eat at. Lady Wisdom, her wine and her bread leads to life, an abundant life. Madame Foolishness, she's loud, she's brash, and she tempts people that with stolen water and secret bread. And people who eat at her table, they don't realize they, they are eating at a table of death and destruction. They follow their own hearts and do so to their destruction. When I was a freshman in high school, we got any freshmen in high school here? Raise your hand if you're a freshman. We have no freshmen in high school? For real? Oh, well, never mind that. I'm just kidding. Um, so there's this song when I was a freshman in high school that made a big impact in my life. And it's because it was called The Freshman. Now, if they had done like a second song follow up, The Sophomore, when I was a sophomore, that would have been cool too. But it spoke a lot to me about being wise. See, being wise is not only just about sin and righteousness, it also is about life and death. What we found in our, what we'll find in our story today, in the story in scripture and history, is this is a story of deadly foolishness. The song lyrics to the freshman went like this. When I was young, I knew everything. And she a punk who rarely ever took advice. Now I'm guilt-stricken sobbing with my head on the floor. The chorus I thought was really poignant. For the life of me, I cannot remember what made us think that we were wise and we'd never compromise. For the life of me, I cannot believe we'd ever die for these sins. We were merely freshmen. Foolishness is not just inconvenient, it's deadly. The unnamed prophet in this account in scripture that Becca read today, this whole story is a story of leaders, liars, and lions. One of those leaders is Jeroboam. He is an unbroken king. He is a prideful king. He is a foolish king. He was not always king. He was not born to be king. He is the first king of the divided kingdom. If you remember King David, King Solomon, King Solomon, he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. He's the most wise person who's ever lived. So wisdom actually isn't everything. There's also a choice. There's knowing the right way to walk and actually walking in it. He institutes idol worship, even in his kingdom. And God rips the kingdom away, but just not in Solomon's time. It'll be for his son, Rehoboam. And during the time of Solomon, there is a, there is a prophet who comes over, who, um, who speaks to um, Jeroboam. His name is Ahijah. And he takes his cloak. And if you remember from last week and the week before, the cloak of the prophet is his mantle of office. He takes it and he rips it. Ripping it being a symbol of mourning. So he rips it because Israel now will be ripped apart. He rips it into 12 pieces and he gives 10 to Jeroboam. To let him know that because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, God would be splitting the kingdom apart and he would get 10 tribes. So he is the first king of this new kingdom. And he tells him, the prophet tells Jeroboam, if he would follow the ways of David in keeping the Lord's statutes and commands that he would build for 
Jeroboam a house like David. What that means is a dynasty. That there would be somebody on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel forever if he would simply keep God's commandments and his statutes. And as soon as Jeroboam becomes king, what does he, what does he do? It's really sad. He doesn't honor the Lord, his God. He does not honor the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes two calves, golden calves. He puts one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he tells the people, quote, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound somewhat familiar to you? In Exodus chapter 32, and I have to, I have to like, I want to read this for you today. Jeroboam knew the story of the Exodus. Everybody in Israel knew the story of the Exodus. They knew the story of when Moses was on the mountain of God and the people were worried that, you know, he's dead. We got to do something else here. Aaron the prophet, he takes, he takes the rings and the jewelry that they had gotten from the Egyptian. He melts it down. He makes a calf. So Jeroboam, he's like, well, I'll go one more. I'll make two calves. In, verse, in chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, Let me just find this right here. And Jacob, wait, I'm in Genesis. <laughs> that, was, that was so like, um, you know, building up the tension just to deflate it right there. Um, I'm like, well, this doesn't look right. All right, um, verses three and four. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it into a, graving, into a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam does exactly what they did there. And if you remember, when Moses comes down, he is, he is hopping mad. He makes them drink a mixture of the gold. Several of them die. Many, many of them die. Jeroboam refuses to learn from that history. And he does, he does twice. One in Bethel, one in Dan. There must be something particularly demonic or somewhere in our sinful nature to make an idol out of things that have been set aside and consecrated to the Lord. Let me tell you what I mean here, because I wish, I wish this was something that was so far removed from our culture today that you'd be like, well, that's weird. No, why would somebody do something like that? Here's how relevant this is. There's this woman named Nadia Bulls Weber. Um, she plays at being a pastor, and I, I mean that with all sincerity. Um, I don't care who ordained her or whatever. She is absolutely not a pastor. And I'll tell you why. Because if you remember in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was all these True Love Weights conferences and people would get purity rings. So she really hates purity culture. So she had everybody send in these rings. She then melted them, melted them down and made a very profane sculpture and then gave it to a, a feminist activist during a Sunday morning. It is, it's what we're reading right here. People are like, the Bible isn't relevant. It's very relevant. It's extremely relevant. Melting down the blessings of God so we bow down to an idol that profanes his name. It is the, the abomination that causes desolation. One of the things that Jeroboam does, and this is in our chapter 12 of 1 Kings, is that 
as he's instituting this new religion or as a, as a kind of a quasi-desecration um, uh, of the true religion, he ordains priests, not out, of the, not out of the tribe of Levi or the priestly line, according to God's command, just anybody who wants to, anybody who has the desire, who has the ability to, could be a priest in this new thing. And God, God really does not like this. In fact, I mean, it's kind of surprising as you're reading this, like, this is one of the things where God is like, especially mad about. You know, I think there's a problem when in any religious organization, any Christian organization, fellowship, including our own, if we only see the clergy, those who are pastors and so on and so forth, that the only barrier is just desire and ability. God is the one who calls. I believe I have a calling of God on my life or I would not be here. I'm not, I'm not trying to like, woe is me type of a thing. But when I used to work in, when I used to work in treatment um, and I got promoted, I didn't have like a period of like five days of depression. But in the ministry, you get spiritually attacked as you, as you progress. But I have a calling of God on my life. It's like, it's like Jeremiah who says, it's a fire shot up in my bones. Um, I think it's one of the worst things you can do is encourage somebody in ministry who is not vocational ministry in a position of ministry that God has established. If they are not called, it will ruin them. And I wish somebody had the love in their heart to tell people in my generation, because so many people, me and Becca went to college with, and are not believers today because the ministry crushed them because they had no business being in it. One of the worst things that happen to people is trying to take on callings that God has not called them. You know, we see this also in other fields as well. Somebody who really likes kids, but they really don't have a calling on their life to be like a preschool teacher. So then they crush those little souls underneath their boot because they, they're just not, they don't have the temperament for it. They don't have the calling. This is all, this, this story right here is a prequel to the last bit of my message last week when we talked about the she-bears attacking those, those gang of kids. Well, they're not kids. They were like young, they're young men. Think of like a gang of kids. It's one of those stories in the scripture. People are like, what's going on with this? So like, like after Elijah goes up to be with the Lord, Elisha is then walking across Bethel. Remember where that lamb, one of those uh, calves, golden calves were at? They were in Bethel. And a gang of, gang of uh, ruffians, they're telling him, why don't you go up too, prophet? That, that's like code for, why don't you die? Like they were being vicious. They were being, I mean, they, they were threatening him. And uh, he calls out, he, he curses them, and two she-bears come out, and they maul the bunch. And some, some people have read that, and they're like, they're like, what I've learned from this is don't, don't mock bald people, because they, they have the power to send she-bears after you. And as I lose hair, I'm like, that's not a bad one. <laughs> That's not the case at all. This is the prequel to this. Jeroboam has devalued the position of priest, of prophet. He has devalued God in the sight of the people of Israel. That's the prequel to what happens right there. It's why they thought that they could make fun of and possibly harm God's prophet. Chapter 13 is ultimately a story in history about foolishness. One, it's an unbro- about an unbroken king. Two, a lying, a lying prophet. And three, and I'll explain this when I get to it, three's company too. So in verses 1 through 10, I call this an unbroken king, speaking of Jeroboam. In verse 1 of chapter 13, we have a glimpse at the pride of this king. 
And behold, this is verse 1, And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. The king was standing at the altar to make an offering. Saul, the first king of Israel, period, he was deposed as king because he did not wait for Samuel, and he made the offering himself. He was king, but he was not a priest. See, God is very particular in the way that he expects our worship. And we ignore that when we try to be like, well, we in pride say, well, I, I, I'm just as good as the priest. I'm going to start doing this. So you guess that? No, there's a king much later in Judah than Jeroboam. His name is Uzziah. Uzziah, he was a righteous king. He was a good guy. But when he grew powerful, it said he grew proud. And he went into the altar of God and he burned incense, just burning incense. And when he was confronted, he got angry about it and God strikes him with leprosy. Jeroboam is making sacrifices on this altar that he had made to these calves. He is a man of pride. But he is a man who is experiencing God's mercy as well. Many people read these Old Testament accounts. And at the very end of this chapter, it tells us that his whole line will be destroyed from the earth. And we're like, God just seems really mean. Well, Jeroboam, we'll read about this. Warning, 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 warning. This is God's discipline for us. It goes from gentle to the more stringent to get our attention. Learning is the most gentle form of the disciplines of God. Just simply reading in God's word, believing it, and putting it into practice. It is the gentlest, it's the best way to go about it. Because you don't want God to then scale up. And God disciplines every son and daughter he loves. And because he loves you, he will, he will put on more and more discipline. Next to learning is correction, meaning you were wrong. And this takes for our pride to die, for us to see somewhere, well, I'm wrong, so now I'm going to accept correction. Sometimes it's something we are doing, and we have to look back, and we need to turn away from that. Repent means to turn away from. It actually means a change of mind, metanoia, which is in the Greek New Testament. Correction isn't pleasant because we have to come to terms that we were thinking or doing something wrong, but it is far and away more gentler than other forms of God's correction. Jeroboam and his family are eventually destroyed, but he is warned and receives the mercy of God multiple times. It is like God pleading with him to stop, but he will not be broken by God. He is too busy trying to please men. Verse 2, And the man cried out against the altar, by the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign of the Lord, that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam snatched, stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And the hand which he stretched out against him dried up so he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. In this section right here, Jeroboam is given warning after warning after warning about what he's doing. 
gently. In fact, the man of God doesn't even address him. He addresses the altar. He says, oh, altar, altar. God sends this unnamed prophet from Judah to confront the king. The prophet actually delivers his prophecy to the altar itself. He says, oh, altar, altar. So Jeroboam has been warned um, even in the very first part of this prophet's warning. The second part of the prophet's warning is a future defilement and a present defilement of the altar. So when it talks about the, the prophets of the high places being uh, their blood being spilled on the altar, what you need to read into that is the defilement. God has no regard for this altar that he's made. Also, the present defilement will be the ashes being spilled out. There was strict guidelines when it comes to altar worship of how to dispose of the ashes to not make the altar itself unclean. They poured out right then and there. It would be defilement. It would be a very unclean altar. You're actually supposed to take those ashes and put them somewhere else. He's also given miracles. And, and the ashes, they spill out um, as he, his hand is shriveled up. He's given two miracles. The king will experience several miracles in his lifetime, but these ones are a wake-up call. He points to the prophet to have him seized. It wasn't like, so I can talk to him closer. It's to have him killed. So that nobody else needs to hear about what somebody's saying against the king because he's a king of, this guy's a king of pride. He's unbroken by God. He's been broken by men, but he's unbroken by God. So he wants the man of God seized to shut him up. It's what we do so much with our own conscience, right? So much of what I'll see in popular culture or whatever, especially when it comes to sexual ethics, this is people trying to kill their own conscience. Because it's okay for these people to do this stuff. It's okay for me to do this stuff. He wants the prophet, he wants the person speaking the words of God killed. And as he points out his hand, his hand shrivels up. Some of your translations will say shriveled up, mine say dry up. And you can just imagine him pointing, and then all of a sudden it's this rictus that he can't pull back. And he, he asked the man of God, entreat to God for me. In other words, stand in the gap. Be my ambassador to God so that my hand will be healed. Jeroboam has no concept of a personal relationship with God. It's not his God. It's the prophet's God. He prays for him, and his hand comes back to normal. He has two miracles. Wake-up call time, right? But he is an unbroken king. What does it mean to be broken? We know what it looks like when people are broken by this world. And it's really sad. Timid, depressed, anxiety-written. Not even wanting to lift your face up. Being broken by God does the exact opposite. It does the exact opposite. It makes you correctable. We can either humble ourselves or God can humble us. Brokenness is when our pride dies and we are able to accept correction. David Wilkerson, in one of his sermons, says that, the, that even in his day and age, churches had a hatred for correction. And absolutely, so many churches, so many pastors don't even want to preach on sin. I always hear that and it kind of makes me laugh because I did a seven-week um, sermon series on sin. Because I don't, I, have no, I don't blush at that. I blush at sin, but I do not blush to preach on sin. It makes you courageous to be broken by God. It's kind of a weird thing. You are broken. You are tender towards God. Your affections are inflamed towards the Father. But it makes you courageous. It makes you a thing of steel and iron that this world cannot break. I talked before about Elijah. He says, the God before whom I stand, before he, because he stood before God, he would not kneel before men. 
It makes you a person of steel and iron that this world cannot break. This young prophet knew what possibly could happen. Almost all of the prophets you read about in the Old Testament die badly. Isaiah, one of my favorite prophets to read about, was literally sawn in two. He knew, what the, he knew what the consequences were, but he was willing to accept those consequences because he had a word of God in his mouth that he was going to deliver. But this king, he has no courage. He set up those altars because he was afraid. Idol worship is because you are afraid, because you do not trust that God will have your back. So you have to trust in all of these other things. He was afraid. He was afraid because he may have had the, 12, the 10 tribes and Rehoboam had one, and the Leviticus priesthood makes up the other. But he knew that Rehoboam had Jerusalem, so when they wanted to make sacrifices, they had to go up to Jerusalem. So he thought to himself that I'm going to lose a kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom of me. He thought they'd kill him, actually, because they were still having to go up to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. So does he trust in the Lord that God has his back, that God will make him a house like David? No, he's too afraid of the people. He's too afraid of the people, so he makes for them idols to worship. Being broken before God means you have courage because you, are, because you fear God more than you would ever fear men. Being broken before God means you have a tender heart toward personal sin. A tender heart toward personal sin. Everybody hates what they consider sin in others. I remember listening to an um, uh, interview with um, founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, can't remember her name for some reason. Um, Margaret Sanger, right? Margaret Sanger. And um, they had asked her, what do, you, what do you consider sin? And she rejected all other definitions of sin. And she's like, having a kid that you can't take care of. That was her only definition of sin. So everybody has the finger to point at somebody they think is the sinner. You know what's amazing? What God does in our life is then we start looking, we start pointing at me. And we start becoming heartbroken over my personal sin. Ways I've fallen short. Because before I knew Christ, I didn't know what it cost. When I lied to my mom or I lied to whomever, I didn't know what that cost. I thought I'm just trying to get out of trouble. As a believer, I realized it was another nail into the hands of my Savior. So being broken before God means you have a tender heart towards personal sin. Gene Edwards wrote a book titled A Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. The three kings in his book are Saul, David, and Absalom. The prophet's message also includes a tale of three kings. It's also a study in brokenness. However, these three kings are different. These three kings are David, Josiah, and Jeroboam. David, the house of David, is mentioned by this unnamed prophet. Jeroboam had already heard about the house of David when he was told by a whole other prophet that if he would walk in the ways of David, God would establish him a house too. David is one of those kings. Josiah. This is very interesting. Some people believe that this was added by the writers of Kings many years later because because Josiah wouldn't be born for another nearly 300 years. It's literally 290 years um, from this time. And uh, which I think is funny because like, so you just have to believe that God doesn't speak then, right? Because if this is a prophecy and if God is real and he speaks, then yeah, I mean, why would they need to add it? 
because that's is God's prophecy. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous circular argument that they have there. Josiah, Josiah walked in the ways of his father's David. And part of what that meant was a wide-ranging reforms that accomplished exactly what this unnamed prophet said he would do. We have Jeroboam as the third king. He is the king put into power by the hand of God in front of a prophet. And he is in front of another prophet right now. When confronted about doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, he wants the prophet dead. We can see in, the, in these three kings the difference between a broken king and an unbroken king, or brokenness and unbrokenness. David, 2 Samuel 12. King David, by this moment, King David is said by God to have followed the statutes and commands of God. But that does not mean that he was perfect, and that's probably one of the biggest understatements you can make. You may know the story. David, he's sitting on, he's sitting on the uh, roof of his house, and he sees somebody bathing. Wife of one of his mighty men. He has the man killed, and he takes the man's wife for his own. And he lives this way for a good period of time. And you can, I can't even imagine how, how, how just deaf to the Holy Spirit, to your own conscience, and to everything you've ever read in the law you'd have to be. To live in this, to concoct this plan. And then all of a sudden, Nathan the prophet, he comes into the king's courts in front of the king's men, and he tells him a story about a man who took another man's sheep, even though he had all the sheep he could ever want. And David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan tells him, you're the man. A lot of other kings in David's spot, Jeroboam, for instance, would have said, seize him. Kill everybody who heard that. In my kingdom, I'm the king. David is a broken king because he breaks at this moment. And you'll read several psalms of his brokenness. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. A tenderness towards personal sin. And renew a right spirit within me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. That wasn't a cop-out. He was appealing to the highest authority there was. That his sin was that heinous. David was a broken king. Jeroboam was a broken king. You can read about his story in 2 Kings chapter 22. 290 years after this moment, there will be an eight-year-old who takes the throne in Judah. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord in the 18th year of his reign. So he's around 26 years old. He wants to make sure that the money that is being, that is being withheld for the temple is being used wisely. So he sends one of his servants. And a servant, while he's there, while he's checking out the temple to be refurbished, he finds the book of the law. He gives it to another servant. Another servant comes before the king. He reads the book of the law. So for a number of years, the God's word was not read in Judah or Israel. He takes the book of the law. He reads it before the king. And the king weeps. He tears his clothes. This should be the power of the word of God in our life. It shouldn't have to take God to correct us, to get our attention through all these means. But simply by reading the word of God, Josiah tears his clothes. That's a sign of repentance, of sorrow, of mourning. And he responds to the gentlest form of God's discipline, instruction. We also have Jeroboam. He's confronted by the unnamed prophet. He receives mercy time and time again, but he stretches out his hand to have the man seized. It's shriveled. It is healed. And according to the word of God, once again, according to the word of God, his hand is healed. For his response, we can read the last verse of chapter 13. Let me read it for you. Verses 30, verse 34. 
And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the, earth, from the face of the earth. Jeroboam does not repent. He is, remains unbroken. My second point here is the lying prophet. Verses 11 through 18. Verses 11 through 18. So in verse 11, it says, Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. Stop! When I was reading this first time, like when I was like a teenager, I'm like, wait, there's a prophet in Bethel? How can there be a prophet in Bethel if uh, God had to sublet out to Judah? Why didn't God speak through this man? He's a prophet. Well, we'll find out very quickly. He does not have the character of a prophet. He does not. He, he is a lying deceiver. He is not a man who just simply is confused. He is a lying deceiver. He is blessed by God, but he does not use the blessing of God. He is a parasite. This old prophet who is not doing the things of God, hears about a man who is doing the things of God, another prophet, and he wants to hang out with him. Maybe he's hoping some of that will rub off on him, or maybe he's hoping he might get some of that, some of that fame that this new prophet is getting. Whatever the reason is, he wants to go find this man. This man has a clear word of God. The prophet, the younger prophet, has a clear word from God. You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way you came. You may, um, you have many clear, you and I have many very clear words from God. You and I have very many clear words from God. We have it right here. And there are certain commands that don't come with a caveat. There are certain commands we should be doing right now. In fact, Jessica talked about this in our Sunday school class. One of them is the Great Commission. That's not multiple choice. Every single believer is to go out into all the world, making disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. All of us have that command. We don't get to say, well, that's not my gifting. There are other things too. Like for instance, the Ten Commandments. You don't need God to write on your wall, stop lying, just don't lie. And you don't have to be like, well, I'm going to pray about this. That's something we'll say oftentimes when we say, like, I don't want to deal with it. Well, I'll pray about it. There's a clear word from God. You know, there is a way in which God does speak to our spirit. But if you want a clear word of God, go to his scripture. So oftentimes we are so, we are so perplexed in our spirit. We're like, God, we need a fresh word of God. If you want to hear God's word, open up your Bible and start reading. If you want to hear God's word out loud, read it out loud. The Spirit, there is a way the Spirit speaks and directs us, but the surest way to hear from God is what he's already said. The scriptures are to the exclusion of all other claims. Let me say that again. The scripture is to the exclusion of all other claims. Somebody has something to say that goes against the word of God? Forget about it. Forget about it. I want to talk about lying prophets here because this is what this guy says um, in verse 18, that he lied. Yes, but he lied to him. This is a hard one. I was speaking to a friend about this. He's like, what do you do with this? Because the guy said he had a vision of an angel telling him. I'm like, you see, but he, but the younger prophet didn't get that vision. The younger prophet was told something very specific. Not all prophets are from God. There are false prophets and lying prophets. The scripture gives us three origins of prophecy. One we've already read about today with the younger prophet. That is from God. The second one is Satan. Satan has his own prophet in, in the book of Revelation. But we also see in other parts of the scripture, um, demonically influenced prophets. 
We have in the time of Ahab, Ahab is about to go to war and they're looking for a prophet. And the true prophet says that God gave him a vision in the heavenlies. The, the, the God of all the world is asking the spirits, hey, is there a lying spirit who would want to go to these uh, false prophets? And some unclean spirits like, yeah, me, I want to do this. That's going to be great. That's another origin of prophecy. And you know, the crazy thing about this is those prophets can be right. In Deuteronomy, it talks about somebody coming into the camp who makes prophecies and they come true. So if your standard for a true prophet of God is if it comes true, that's an incomplete rubric for what a true prophet is. There is also people who prophesy out of their own emotions. Jeremiah 23, verses 6, starting verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak of visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of God. Visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Going down to verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts? So here's another thing. It doesn't have to be demonically influenced or divinely influenced. There are people, there are lying prophets who just prophesy out of their own heart's desire. That's this guy right here. He lies. He just makes up the story. It's okay for us to call people out like that. I want to give you four rules for discernment when it comes to prophecy. And if you're, if you're writing stuff down, you want to write this down. Anytime I hear any prophecy or any claim, I run it through these four rubrics to see if it's true or not. One, is there a clear word of the Lord against it? Not for it, against it. Let me explain this. The devil used scripture, but he twisted scripture. This is called proof texting, just finding something to support what I want to talk about today. So that's one of the ways I do not preach. So the devil can twist scripture, use scripture and twist it. So can a lying prophet. You need to know God's word and you need to look for clear words. No, not suppositions or whatever, but is there a clear word against what they are saying? That is number one to the exclusion of all others. The second you would think would be number one. I used to think it was number one. And that is, does it come true? I don't make that number one anymore because I read Deuteronomy that said a lying prophet can prophesy something and it comes true. And then he teaches you not to obey the Lord. So the first one, is there something in the God's word against it? If there's nothing in God's word against it, clearly against it, the second one is, does it come true? God doesn't lie. God doesn't lie. And man cannot frustrate his plans. If you've heard me for long enough, I've made that case so crystal, I'm not going to go over it all again. If God prophesies something, it comes true. The only time that might be somewhat different or seem different is when a people repent. If God promises destruction and people repent and God relents, that's because God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. So he always feels the way he feels about sin and repentance as he always feels about sin and repentance. That is why Nineveh is not destroyed because the people repent. The prophet doesn't even tell them to repent. He just tells them in a few days, this place is going to be destroyed. And they repent. And you know what, his, what Jonah's response to that was? I knew you were like this. 
He's upset. He is angry. He's so angry he wants to die. He's like, you are a God who's rich in mercy. That's why we can prevail upon the mercy of God. Here's the third one. Does it add or subtract? This last week in the Revelation study, we went over that verse about adding and subtracting to that book. But there are other parts in Scripture that warn us not to add or subtract from God's law. So ask this question, does this add or subtract to God's revelation to mankind in the Scripture? New Testament prophecy encourages, it edifies. It does not add revelation. Here's the fourth one. Take into account the track record of the prophet. Take into, the tra- take into account the track record of the prophet. As I've even read to you, even just today in Jeremiah, somebody lies about a prophecy once, just, just forget them. Mark them. Mark them. I don't need to listen to them anymore. Afraid about whether or not I wanted to say about this, but, you know, I, I do. Um, there's a lot of people who call themselves prophet the last couple of years who said that Trump would win re-election. Mark them and stop listening to them. They are lying prophets. Some people I know, some people I have in respect, but they are a lying prophet. Let me go on here. Um, Three's Company, verses 19 through 34. This is unfortunately a tale of three fools. I call the last part of chapter three, Three's Company to, you know, come on, knock on our door. He's been waiting for you. This thing, the thing, I didn't watch the show, so I don't know. Three's company, two. Um, This is because the young prophet, he comes into this story apart from the sin and the dysfunction in Israel. We have the old prophet who's a lying prophet. We have the unbroken king. And he comes, and he's the man of God, and he speaks. But he's told the word, go back home. Don't go back the way you come, came. And he knows it. He knows it. He allows himself in his gullibility to go back with this older prophet. If you don't know the story, let me read it for you here. Um, starting verse 19 through 34. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept my command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown into the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, the men passed by and saw the body thrown into the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it. He said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found the, and he found his body thrown in the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the, beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. 
And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and bury him. And he said, and he said, and he laid the body in in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave to which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. This man comes into the scene. He's apart from it, but because he listens to the lion prophet, he becomes part of it. Madam Folly's table always has room for one more. Never forget that. It always has room for one more. So many people come into my office. Pastor Jason, I thought I'd never be in this situation. And I know people for their whole life, never drank, never smoked, never did drugs. And in like a month's time, they were doing all three. And, and in abundance, like to an, to an outrageous degree. I never thought I'd be there. It's like you, but I warned you though, right? That if you, if you jumped into this, unfortunately, there was a man who, it was a very thing. I told him, it's like, you're, you're doing what is not right in the eyes of the Lord, and, you'll, and, and you're, you're going to experience what you're working for. There's always room at Madame Folly's table. At the very beginning of this, I feel like this is like a horror suspense movie. You ever watch one of those, and it's like, it's getting, it's getting intense, and you start running commentary? No? Oh, that's probably just me. Becca loves it, though. <laughs> I get to tell her, like, who's in the other movies and everything like that. And, you know, it's like, don't go out there. There's axes. What are you doing? This is how I feel about verse 19. What are you doing? So he went back. You went back, but you had the clear word of God saying, don't go back. It's like, it's, it's like one of those suspense movies. And you're like, don't go in there. That's my response to verse 19. Don't go in there. Don't eat at Madame Folly's table. There is only death there. Look at her other guests. The younger prophet believes the older, which under most circumstances would have been good, but the younger prophet wasn't told what the older prophet told him by God. It's so very much like the serpent. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any fruit? No, no. God God said we could eat of any fruit, but just not this one. The clear word of God. You know, when I went to Africa, um, we were on a safari, and you've probably heard this story before. All of a sudden, we stop, and I hear somebody say, don't make any sudden movements. And I'm looking around, I'm like, what? So I look down, and probably like from me to like over there are two lionesses. And I'd never seen lions in real life without a cage, you know? So you're like, and then with somebody saying to you, like, don't move, don't make any sudden movements, you're like, this is like Jurassic Park. They only see movement. Stay still. We were fine. They had just eaten like a wildebeest and their stomachs were like bulging out. And they were, <laughs> I won't say that. Anyway, um, so anyway, uh, and it reminded me of something of my, my friend Jessica, her son Ty told her before we went, he told her, mom, don't look too tasty around lions. This prophet, and I, I did a sermon one time called Don't Look Too Tasty Around Lions. It was about Daniel. This prophet, on the other hand, did not take that advice, and he looked very tasty around this lion. Um, it is worth noting here, these animals do not act like normal animals in this story. 
The lion tears apart this man, kills him. He doesn't eat him. And then he stands sentry over, over this dead prophet. And the donkey, let me tell you something. Even though those lion, lionesses were like filled to like bursting, as soon as some, we saw a herd of zebra, as soon as they got caught wind of them, they took off out of there. Better to be safe than sorry, right? The donkey and the lion are on each side of him, almost standing as sentries. So many have supposed, and I understand why people would suppose this, is that God was telling him to go, to go straight back home so that he'd avoid the lion. No, he wasn't. Because that lion doesn't eat him. The lion wasn't sitting on the road, hungry, looking for somebody to devour. The older prophet has the right of it. This was God's judgment on the younger man because he did not obey God's commandment. The king has been warned. This event was recorded. Of course, it's been recorded because that's how we're reading it. And it must have gotten back to the king. And that's yet another bit of mercy, a bit of warning for the king. Because it's stop and look at what happens to this godly young man who disobeys God's command. What will God do to you? Jeroboam doesn't care. His heart is so hard. He just he goes on and into his foolishness, into his disobedience of God, and God does wipe him from the face of the earth. When talking about this younger prophet, and the third point is really focusing on that younger prophet. You look at this and you almost want to scream. It's like, what happened to you? Why did you believe this? You were doing so good. Paul in the book of Galatians 5 7, he says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? We see the prophets and we ask, the prophet and we ask him, who cut in on you? We know who cut in on you. There are so many people I see that were on fire for God at one point in time and somebody cut in on you, but you don't have to live there. A lion has not killed you. You're still alive. You don't need to live in disobedience anymore. It's like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. He's looking at a pig's breakfast and he's envying a pig's breakfast. And he realizes, my, my father's slaves have it better than I do. I'll go back to my father. You don't have to live in the disobedience anymore. The father's arms. As surely as Madame Folly's table has room for one, Lady Wisdom's table has room for one more. And more importantly, the father's table has room for one more. Has someone cut in on you? Are you not where you were? Is there a time in your life, ask yourself, is there a time in my life where I love Jesus more? I was closer to God. If the answer is yes, then you've backslidden. And today, today is the day where I'm giving you the gentlest form of correction. I'm just saying, turn back to the right way. Turn back to the right way. Is your love and obedience less now than some other time in your life? Something, someone, maybe yourself has cut in on you. Lots of well-meaning people want you to turn back but they don't have the mind of God in mind. Have you ever been in that place where you're getting on fire for God and someone says, all things in moderation? That is such a twisting of scripture, or twisting of an idea that's found in scripture. Um, all things in moderation. They're well-meaning, but they just don't have the mind of God. You know, Peter, the apostle Peter, he was the same way. Jesus tells him he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things and die. And, and Peter tells him, no, never you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. He 
says, you do not have, you do not have in mind the things of God. There are a lot of people who try to cut in on us, who try to stop us from walking the way that we know that God has called us to. When Peter did that, he called him Satan. We shouldn't call people Satan, though. That was out of the, you know, he was Jesus, obviously. But we know that there are well-meaning people who try to cut in on us. We just tell them, I can't turn back. I can't turn back. Should have done what the prophets would have said. I know you have an idea, you had a dream or whatever, but I have a clear word from God and I'm not turning back. There are so many people who twist the scripture, come up with their own ideas that want people to turn back from the truth of God's word. I've got a clear word. I've got a clear word. I don't know what you're talking about, but i got a clear word. Um, worship team, would you come up at this time? This man had a one lion that was waiting to see what he would do. You have two lions waiting to see what you will do. In obedience or disobedience, whether you'll continue on in backsliding, or if you'll turn back into the ways that God wants you to, you know, you need to ask the Holy Spirit, search, search me and find me, see if there's any unclean thing, because there are two lions waiting to see what path you'll take. One lion is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is pulling for you. He wants you to walk in righteousness for his name's sake. Because he loves you and he wants your highest good because, because that is his highest glory. The other lion is the one who roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who wants you to go that way so that he can kill any effectiveness you might have in ministry. Who want to kill whatever joy you may have with your family and friends. Who want to kill any fellowship, especially any fellowship you might have with the Father to numb you to any prodding of the Holy Spirit, there are two lions waiting to see what you will do. May we be, not be like that young prophet, like the lion prophet or the unbroken king, but in brokenness, like that, like that king that the young prophet talks about, Josiah. And we read in God's word, here's where I'm falling short. Because of sorrow of what this does to God, I tear my clothes and I go back to the right path. We're going to sing this last song here. Thank you very much, worship team. And now, and it just doesn't have to be now, we're a living sacrifice, meaning anywhere we go, there's an altar. We ask God, search me and, and know me. See if there is any unclean thing. What ways have I turned back? What ways have I backslidden? You know something? And God is not going to just push you under his heel and crush you. But he's giving you a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That we can confidently approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not to wallow around in our own self-pity, but it brings us back to where God, the trajectory that God has placed us on. Worship team, please lead us in this last song. I'll close in prayer and a blessing.